What did you bring home from your last trip? Rolf Potts explains why souvenir shops were first created to prevent religious pilgrims from ransacking the sacred sites they traveled to see. These early pilgrimages, in a way, created the first souvenir industry. People would manufacture things to sell so that they would be less likely to vandalize a place uh, in order to get a little keepsake. We'll look at the memories your souvenirs create in just a bit. Teresa Bruce retraced a family road trip as she searched for lost childhood memories along the Pan American Highway. You're literally passing through North America, Central America, and South America on one stretch of road. She found that understanding the lives of people she met was her best souvenir of Latin America. But the longer you drive, the more willing and able you are to kind of roll with those changes and appreciate the sacrifices that people make to live there. That plus your travel ideas are just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Something as silly as a keychain of the Eiffel Tower can remind you of a trip to Paris every time you start your car. Rolf Potts explains why souvenirs are an important part of our travels. And we'll see what kinds of questions and stories our listeners have to share a little later in the hour. Let's start with a look at an ambitious road trip Teresa Bruce and her husband took across Central and South America. In an earlier edition of Travel with Rick Steves, Teresa told us why she felt she needed to retrace an epic 1974 family road trip down the Pan American Highway. She's back with us to tell us more about how this time they actually got their camper to make it all the way to the tip of South America. Teresa, welcome back. Nice to be here. If you were in the United States, is, is this the idea you can just get on this road and keep going south and eventually get to Tierra del Fuego? You can, and that's part of the appeal. I mean, you, you're literally passing through North America, Central America, and South America on one stretch of road. Except there is a break right in the middle at Panama. There's what's known as the Darien Gap, and the Pan American Highway does not cross that. In fact, you still can't really get through. I think there was an exploration attempt, but... It's jungle, it's in disputed territory. So at the very end of Central America, you have to find ocean passage to get your rig to South America. And that's what we did. We found a a roll-on, roll-off container ship that took our camper, and then we met it on the other side in Manta, Ecuador. It took us at least three weeks to try and secure passage those ships only leave when there's enough cargo. Oh. And, you know, some go to Colombia and some go to Venezuela and oh. some go to Ecuador. And you have to make the determination of, you know, where it's safe to go. There's all kinds of different ways that you can secure passage. You used to be able to actually ride with your vehicle on those crossings. But after 9-11, you can't. So it's quite logistically challenging. That was definitely the hardest part logistically of the drive down huh. the Pan American Highway. So you look at the map, and Panama is an isthmus, and it, you know, meaning you can get across. But in actuality, if you're driving, it's not an isthmus. You've got Central nope. America, and you've got South America, and you've got to find a way around. Yes, and the camping along the Pan American Highway really sort of stops after Mexico. There's there's no formal campground system until you get to Argentina where every town has a central campground. And it's wonderful. There's a camping and driving culture in Argentina that makes it much easier. So if you make it all the way to Argentina, you will be rewarded, drivers out there. And what do you do in the interim? I mean, north of Argentina, you just stay in roadside motels? In Latin America and South America, it was a little different. In, In Central America, sometimes it was too hot to actually sleep inside a camper that was old and and didn't have air conditioning. So we would 
pay a hotel to let us just park the rig in their parking lot and maybe use the shower. Mm -hmm. Once we got to South America, even that level of travel infrastructure was harder to come by. So generally, you would just try and find a farm or a gas station or something and ask the owners of the land if it was okay if you parked your vehicle for the night and offer some sort of payment. And that was a great way to meet people and Mm -hmm. to really see how real people in the continent live. And, you know, you're not always going to have a level parking situation. You're not going to have any facilities, Hmm. but you're really out there experiencing it. Teresa Bruce proves to us that you can go back. She writes about her two trips down the Pan American Highway, once as a young child in the 1970s, and then 30 years later with her husband. Her book is called The Drive, Searching for Lost Memories on the Pan American Highway. You can see photos from her trips at TeresaBruceBooks.com. Teresa, you write that in Latin America you found it felt just as safe as North America and that uh, commercial news is what skews our perception so much. I just find that so hard to believe. It's funny how, how the image of driving through Latin America is just one of danger. Is it just because we're thinking about banditos and drug lords and butch casting the Sundance Kid or, or what's the deal? I think, and it's just fear of the unknown. Um, Mm -hmm. Latin America isn't really in our consciousness unless we're seeing negative news about it. And what we found was the exact opposite. Now, the roads, I'm going to tell you, they're not great. So we (laughs) had four-wheel drive, and that helped in many situations. And, you know, crossing the borders is as much of a communication challenge as it is anything else. But it really wasn't. We were never physically threatened. But one piece of advice I would give people who do do long road trips like that is we took a pledge, my husband and I, that if either one of us at any point along this long, long road trip really got spooked, really felt like we were in danger or that a situation just looked like there wasn't a good escape route, Our pledge was to trust each other's instincts. And if someone had that feeling, Mm. then you would turn around and drive away without questioning and without argument. And that just taking that pledge as a traveler is really what calms you down and lets you realize that you actually aren't in danger and that you can avoid bad decisions. You're driving over 13 borders, uh, encountering police and corruption and briberies. What was your contact with the local police and To what degree did you need to know the whole bribing culture? Well, I had a bit of experience having done this as a child. But, you know, at first we fought the bribe, the mordita. The word in Spanish means like little bite. And it's just so Mm. irritating. You know, it's not the way things work in our culture. But gradually, when you travel through enough countries in Central and South America and you see the poverty and you see the living conditions, you realize that it's just part of the system. It's just part of the privilege you pay to be able to drive through Mm -hmm. in relative luxury and just to satisfy your curiosity. And so we started thinking of them as donations instead. Mm. And you can't really fight it unless you want to get thrown in jail or, or have some sort of confrontation. And it's really not worth it. It's just about the experience and... Mm. And the bribes are not going to break the bank or is it like 20 or 40 bucks or something? Exactly. And you do pay some creative ones. You you pay people (laughs) not to have a lunch break right when you arrive, or you pay people not to run out of paper. (laughs) It's those kinds of things that you just have to kind of turn your perspective and imagine it from theirs. 
I remember going on the, the sort of hippie bus road from Istanbul all the way to Kathmandu, and I, after a while, I sort of measured how far we had yet to go by how many borders we had yet to cross. It was no problem going cross-country, but the big stressful moments were crossing those borders. That's where you had to deal with the bureaucrats and the police and, and the searches and all that. Exactly. Did you have that kind of feeling in South America? You crossed 13 borders. Was it sort of like a mystery, uh, upcoming this next border? Do we need to hire somebody to shepherd us through? Do we have a big delay? Do we have all the documentation we need? That is the least fun part of a big road trip through South America. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's this great word for kids sort of flood your vehicle when you pull up to an overland border crossing, and they jump on, and they're they're called tramatores, Ah. which sounds traumatizing, but that is really what they're trying to do. they grease the skids. They get you through? Exactly. You pay them off, and that's what you do. And then the roads. You write about how in Bolivia the the roads are so bad that if you take a taxi, it'll leave you on the main square just so they don't have to drive down the, the little lanes that'll mess up their tires. Um, What were the roads like? I think Bolivia is most famous for bad roads, isn't it? It is. And some people actually go for just that reason, the thrill of it. I'm not so thrilled by these terrible roads, but sometimes it's inevitable. In Bolivia, when we were traveling, the main highways and bridges had been washed out in a flood. And so we were forced to literally drive over what they called carriage route. And what that really meant once you you sort of left pavement to gravel to cobblestone, and then it was just ruts across the Altiplano. And they were the actual wagon routes that people and merchants and villagers would use to sell goods from village to village. So the roads in Bolivia are every bit as bad as you'd imagine. Did you ford streams? Were there times where you had to wish there was a bridge? Yes, one time in Bolivia. It's all in Bolivia, I think. (laughs) The the bridge was washed out, and so we were sort of stopped in the road going, what do we do? And this big semi-truck just pulled right around us, went down the embankment, drove along the river, drove up and crossed over a single railroad trestle. And we went, oh, that's what they do. So we just followed along, and, and it was so narrow that I had to get out and walk backwards over these planks, motioning Gary so that he knew to come a little to the left or a little to the right as we crossed this raging river. And so those are the things mm. that you have to learn to go with the flow. And then you uh, complement that with high altitude. Don't some of the roads just go like where you're actually in thin air? You are. The highest point that we crossed was in um, Peru at around 15,000 feet. Driving 15,000 feet, that's taller than Mount Rainier. It is. It's incredible. And what happens when you do it in a day is that you're not even really cognizant of it because we had a a great vehicle, a Ford F-350. It could handle it better than we could. But we took a break at the top at around 15,000 feet, Hmm. and we, we tried to make lunch, and we thought we'd go for a walk. And we didn't even realize how dazed we were. Hmm. And at one point, you know, my husband's trying to take a picture, but he can't really stand up straight. And he says, look, they're over. And he's, he's pointing to a shallow lake and there's flamingos. It's like surreal. Why are there flamingos up here? They belong like in someone's grassy front yard in Florida, not at the top of the world. But they were feeding on the salt flats at the top of this pass. At 15,000 feet. At 15,000 feet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Teresa Bruce about driving the Pan-American Highway. Her book about it is called The Drive, telling the account of, of her and her husband and her dog's trip from Oregon all the way down to Tierra del Fuego. 
Teresa, you crossed 13 borders and a lot of poverty, but not uniform poverty. To what degree did you notice a difference of affluence from country to country and a, and a difference of infrastructure and comfort level for an America, a North American traveler? Um, there was a, a monumental shift south of Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia. That's where, I mean, these are some of the poorest countries in the world, and it's a huge attitude check. I mean, when you're driving through deserts and through borders where there are people in reed mat huts that just look like little cubes they've made in the desert, and it's all in the hopes that someday that land will be valuable and they can lay a claim to it and there might be water there. And so, you know, you definitely see more poverty, more isolation the farther south you get, but also more beauty and more a chance to just really open up and experience something completely unlike anything you will in North America. But then does it, the affluence level rise in Argentina? Yes. By the time we hit Argentina, not the northern part, that's still pretty isolated. But, you know, when you get into sort of Mendoza and the winemaking country, there is more of a calmness. It's more familiar. And there's more of an infrastructure. There are campgrounds in every town and the roads are better until you get to Patagonia. So, yeah, it it changes as you go. But the longer you drive, the more willing and able you are to kind of roll with those changes and appreciate the sacrifices that people make to live there. Sounds like an adventure. Teresa Bruce, thanks so much for writing The Drive and sharing with us a little insight into what may be the ultimate road trip, the Pan American Highway. Happy travels, Teresa. Thank you. We'll hear what our listeners have to say about what they hear on the show in just a bit. But first... Rolf Potts explores the role souvenirs play in reminding us of special moments from our travels. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. I remember on my very first trips, whether gathering shells on the beach in Hawaii as a little kid or collecting pins for my felt hat in Germany, I had a deep need to take home tangible memories or souvenirs. Something as simple as a keychain or a postcard can take us back to the places we've traveled. Rolf Potts joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to examine the history and the importance of the souvenir. That's also the title of his latest book, Souvenir. Rolf, it's great to have you back. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be back, Rick. Boy, you know, reading your book, I realized how important souvenirs were on on my early trips. It just seems like human nature to want physical bits of the experience to help you remember what you did. Yeah, it's something that I thought enough of souvenirs to write a book about it, but in researching the book, I sort of surprised myself by realizing how common they are from the time that we're little kids collecting shells. I did the exact same thing. I talk about that in, in the book all the way through our adult lives when we collect souvenirs in a different way, but we still really use them to organize our memories of these distant places. Oh, yeah. Let's think back to our earliest souvenirs. I, it's just so much fun to think, because I, I don't do souvenirs now because I've traveled enough where I've got a piles of boxes in my attic labeled priceless souvenirs, you know? But uh, right. when you first start traveling, 
I was just really creative about it. As a little kid, I had no money, but I collected matchbooks. I remember I collected bottle caps. All over Europe, you could find bottle caps in the street, and it said what city these bottles were bottled in. Sugar cubes were great, coasters, tickets. Uh, there's lots of just little knickknacks you can pick up. What are some of your early memories from souvenirs? Well, in the book, I talk about this clamshell that I picked up on the shores of Lake Michigan. I grew up in Kansas and didn't see the ocean until I was 15. So when I was seven, Lake Michigan was so big that I couldn't see the other side. And when I found this clamshell, I took it and kept it for myself. But when I came home, I started calling it a seashell because I was, <laughs> I guess, sort of aggrandizing my own travels, but also sort of dreaming my way into further travels. I thought that every time I looked at that clamshell, I thought, well, maybe I'll see an ocean someday and collect hmm. a seashell. So. Yeah. I think it's a common, even before we have money, there's a souvenir industry, but we don't need it. As, as children know, that you can pick things up yeah. and they become little treasures in their own right. And it is kind of a reminder that there's a bigger world out there. Maybe that's a fun value of a souvenir. I, I remember as a kid suffering through the night as my cuckoo clock would ring every hour. I couldn't sleep, but I had to have that cuckoo clock on my wall, and I finally learned to sleep with my stupid German cuckoo clock going off every hour in the wall. I was the only kid in my band with a trumpet without piston valves. I had rotary valves on my trumpet because it reminded me of my time in Eastern Europe where that was the standard thing. I even bought a Norwegian sweater too big for me at the time because I wanted to wear it when I was an adult. So these are all memories. In fact, the word souvenir, it's from the French word to remember, right? Yeah, to remember or to, to bring us back to ourselves. And huh. if you go to uh, cemeteries like Père Lachaise, which is a place you know well, you occasionally see the phrase souvenir on tombstones, yeah. which uh, it's tied into memories of our family members. And then souvenirs in their different iterations, including the, the cuckoo clock that seemed like the best gift ever until it went <laughs> off every hour. It's something that follows us our whole lives. And they serve different purposes at different times. You know, that Norwegian yeah. sweater, by the time you were an adult, may have had a completely different energy as a token of memory. It sure did. Now, you write about the history of souvenirs because they're as ancient as travel itself. They really are, and in fact, they no doubt predate recorded history. I think it's just mm -hmm. such, a, such a human thing to reach down at a special moment and pick something up to help you remember it. Mm -hmm. um, all of the early uh, recorded traditions are, are tied into religions, and so the Greek and Roman shrines and old Hindu and Buddhist shrines in India as well had little souvenir rituals. But the best documented one in the Western tradition is the Christian pilgrimage tradition throughout the Middle Ages, at a time when the line blurred between relics, which were considered holy and considered to have healing powers, mm -hmm. crossed the line with the more commercial souvenirs that we might see in the gift shop today, those actually existed in a form in places like Jerusalem and, and Santiago de Compostela and Rome and other places where pilgrims went. Mm -hmm. Because if enough pilgrims go to a place, not everybody can tear off a little chunk of the temple or a, mm. a splinter of the two cross. Pretty soon it will be gone. Mm -hmm. So... These early pilgrimages, in a way, created the first souvenir industry so that people would manufacture things to sell so that they would be less likely to vandalize a place uh, in order to get a little keepsake. Now, in the very, very early days of the early church, uh, Europeans would go to the Holy Land and bring home historic relics. I mean, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helen, actually brought home the steps of Pontius Pilate's mansion, right? I mean, that's a pretty unwieldy souvenir. Were people bringing this back to own a bit of it, or were they bringing it back because they would have uh, religious or magical properties? I think all reasons, you know, that yeah. even a little vial of dust from the sanctuary of the ascension that you, that you wear around your neck on a necklace, 
it proves that you've been to a place hmm. in, in an age in the in medieval ages when people didn't usually travel very far. Mm-hmm. It also was considered a place that had been in touch with divinity, and so it did yeah. was considered to have holy powers. And as a relic, sometimes there was so much belief in these items from Jerusalem in particular that they would use them to consecrate churches, that you could actually take a rock from the shores of uh, the Jordan River, and if you carried it all the way back to France or, or Germany or Spain, then it would be built right into the church, and then that church would contain a souvenir that made it a little bit holier. In your book, you write about contact relics. They've actually been blessed, or they've been touched something that was holy, and now that takes with it those powers, I guess, and that would, from a medieval point of view, give legitimacy to that particular chapel. Yeah, well, actually, you if if a nobleman from your village was leaving for the Holy Land, you might give him a semi-precious stone, and if he touched that to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, then that stone that started out as a semi-precious stone would take on this this divine energy. I think Mm -hmm. people sort of saw their religious lives in a way differently than we do now, Mm -hmm. and there was something about, you know, in, in an age where we can go on Instagram and see all kinds of pictures of the Church of Holy Sepulchre and all kinds of information and mm. what this neighborhood is like, the idea that this little stone has been pressed to the tomb of Jesus really makes it this, this very important object in your life, even if you don't go there yourself. Travel writer and blogger Rolf Potts has written a fascinating guide to the importance of the souvenir from the times of the Crusaders to your latest vacation tchotchke. His book, Souvenir, is part of the Object Lessons series by Bloomsbury. It's the one with an Eiffel Tower keychain on the cover. I like the turning point you talk about in your book. You mentioned by 1700, intellectual curiosity surpassed religious pilgrimage as the main reason to travel and uh, what powered people's appetite for souvenirs. In fact, you even talked about how in the 1700s, Thomas Jefferson actually carved a piece of Shakespeare's wooden chair to take home with him. Is that true? Yeah, and that's that's a story. Once I found that story, I realized I could write a whole book on this because yeah. actually John Adams was with him. It wasn't just Thomas Jefferson, but John Adams as well. And they went from London to Stratford, and this was before the time of interpretive information, and even his grave didn't have his name on it, which Adams was sort of disappointed about. And the servants who they had bribed for access to the Shakespeare estate gave him a little knife and said, well, this is the ritual. You cut off a piece of the chair, and you can still see that splinter in Monticello. I'm not sure what happened wow. to John Adams' <laughs> souvenir, no. but it, it sounds like adolescent vandalism, but these are the fathers of our country who, who yes. were chopping off pieces of the bard's furniture. I expose a different sensibility about historic or artistic treasures. Uh, and when you have a powerful, wealthy person who gets to travel and gets access like that, they come home and, and they often had their uh, Wunderkammern, their wonder chambers that they would show off. And a prince in some little palace in Germany, if you visited his palace, he'd take you into his wonder chamber and show all the amazing relics and objects of uh, interest that he'd picked up in his travels. That's kind of an extreme elite kind of souvenir chamber, isn't it? It is, but it's it's really sort of the grandfather of the modern museum, that the line between souvenirs that are brought home by wealthy people or by merchants who sell them to wealthy people. These princes, they might have had money and a nice house, but somehow there was just a little bit more status if they had Ming China or swords from Indonesia or other exotic things. While for them it was a status symbol that was very private and they could they could bring their guests into this room, Eventually, the public took an interest, and on behalf of states, like with the British Museum, 
they took this old souvenir ritual of rich people and turned it into what really is is the modern museum, where we go and see these relics mm-hmm. from far off all in one room together. And we see that when we travel. There's not only palaces that have a room full of this kind of uh, these treasures and so on, but just very wealthy people's homes from 200 years ago that today are just like almost like hoarders of treasures, and they had the ability to collect all this stuff. And I think the John Soane Museum in, in London is like that. Yeah, and it ties into that idea that there was a time, it's easy to forget it now, before mass travel, when the people who really had access to, right. to far-flung travel besides soldiers and merchants were wealthy people. And in, on the continent, they had the grand tour that was a part of their education. And so when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson carved Shakespeare's chair, for example, there wasn't a bus full of people waiting outside. You know, It was sort of a privilege of the wealthy. Right. And that Ritual really changed. If you look at the history of souvenirs, it's almost in tandem with the Industrial Revolution. Mm. By the 19th century, people at places like Stratford or Mount Vernon realized that you couldn't just let people break Mm. off pieces, that they actually had to have a more formal gift shop and souvenir industry. And so that was that's really the birth when it changed from these noblemen and aristocratic people traveling to everyday middle class people traveling. Souvenirs really transformed into a mass phenomenon. Rolf Potts is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He explores how we come to depend on the objects we bring home from our travels to focus our identities and our memories. His book is called Souvenir, and Rolf blogs about his travels and interviews fellow travelers on his website at rolfpotts.com. And Rolf, that is a very important threshold in the whole story of souvenirs. It was basically with the Paris Expo, with the Eiffel Tower, 1889, and then the World Expo in Chicago a couple years later, uh, 1893, when all of a sudden Chicago sort of popularized all these teaspoons, these little souvenir spoon craze that survives to this day. Yeah, a lot of people will mention a a grandmother or some sort of relative who had a little spoon rack in her house. It was the first souvenir fad of note. Basically what happened in Paris and Chicago both is that jewelry manufacturers manufactured a craze. Hmm. And in Chicago specifically, they said, well, in Europe, where people are very refined, every time they go to a new city, they buy a spoon to commemorate that city. Well, that didn't really happen in Europe, but Americans, wanting to be sophisticates, latched onto this craze, and so that every city, I grew up in Kansas, I found some from Hutchinson, Kansas, and Salina, Kansas, it was this strange phenomenon where suddenly tourists out of nowhere wanted spoons, and suddenly destinations, Mm. even small ones, were manufacturing spoons. And it was the first real souvenir craze of the modern era. And even today, a lot of us can remember it's sort of the granny's souvenir. Our grandmothers, when they had the opportunity to travel, whether it was to, uh, you know, San Francisco or Chicago or, or Vegas, they would bring home a little souvenir spoon. And I, I like how you explained in 1889 with the uh, Paris Expo, and that was when they built the Eiffel Tower for the 100th anniversary of the uh, French Revolution, postcards sort of become in vogue. And when you think about it, postcards are perfect because they create this idealized division. Uh, before, there were cheap camera images, so it made sense to buy somebody else's photograph of it. And you would mail it with a stamp, which uh, you mentioned in your book would, would sort of authenticate it. And uh, they're easy to collect. It's kind of like maybe an early form of Facebook. Hey, look where I was. And you send uh, a postcard home. Yeah, or even Instagram. It's really brilliant. You know, we think of picture postcards. We don't even think about them. But until around the time of the Paris Expo, postcards were just blank postal cards. There was no pictures on them. And it was around that time, at the end of the 19th century, that they started putting these pictures, again, before there were snapshot cameras, onto the postcards. And there was a boom in postcards. And in fact, I think around 1900... 
Sweden was selling so many that basically every Swede in Sweden would have to buy 10 postcards a year to sell that many postcards. It was the craze of its time. It really was the Twitter or Instagram of its time. That's so fun to be just thoughtful about that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rolf Potts. His book is Souvenir. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Valerie's calling in from Boulder in Colorado. Valerie, thanks for your call. I'm glad to be here. We've traveled a lot in the Middle East, and we love the Armenian potters that are in Jerusalem. And I think our best souvenir was that from one of the families of the Armenian potters that came to um, Palestine in the 1920s to do the tiles for the Dome of the Rock, we bought our kitchen counter tiles when we redid our kitchen. And we went to their store on Nablus Road and picked out what we wanted, and then they were shipped to us from Amman, Jordan. So it was very fun to get this box with all this Mm. Middle Eastern postage on it and then unpack all of these tiles, which came absolutely pristine, and then have them put into our kitchen counters. So every day we remember that day specifically buying those tiles from that particular Mm. branch of that Armenian family in, in Jerusalem. You know, Valerie, that is, the, uh, to me, the very best kind of souvenir. It's, it's, you actually incorporate it into your life, and it's practical, it's, it's artistic, it's cultural, and it reminds you of your trip. Absolutely. Very nice. Well, thank you. I think that inspires the, the rest of us to do that. Ralph, have you thought about that kind of souvenir? Well, I was thinking that that's a terrific souvenir. And in a way, I would imagine historically there was a time at which that those Armenian potters realized that the visitors, the many, many visitors to that part of the world, were also interested in that. And what... What a special kind of souvenir. When you, it's not just something that you would put on a shelf. It's something that you would actually build onto your, yeah. in, into your own house. And so that's just a terrific kind of souvenir to have. Thanks, Valerie, for your call. Thank you. Olga's calling in from Vancouver and Washington. Olga, do you have any tips for souvenir shopping? Yes, I do. Since my husband and I uh, got married 29 years ago, I always try to find a small item from each country that we're visiting. It could be a magnet, keychain, for example, like a small Eiffel Tower or a small double-decker bus from London. And I put ribbon around it, and then we decorate our Christmas tree, and we call it the travel Christmas tree. So Mm. when we are decorating the tree, we always have fun memories to share about where we picked up that particular little memento. I love that. And it's pretty easy to do. There's lots of small ornament-sized mementos that you can get, and sometimes they're designed to hang on a tree. Other times you got to drill a little hole and put some fish wire on it, and <laughs> then you can yeah, do it. Yeah, nice. exactly. Good idea. Thanks for your tip. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Rolf Potts about souvenir. And Olga's call reminded me that we can buy stuff that's just clutter and junk, or we can buy stuff that really becomes a beautiful part of our lives. I I think, uh, for me, a backgammon board I bought at a tea house in eastern Turkey. It wasn't a modern one. It was an old used one, very well used. The soft wood is worn deeper than the hard wood, and it still smells like the tea and the tobacco of that corner of Turkey. For the rest of my life, when I play backgammon, it'll take me to Turkey. That, to me was just a great souvenir. What is your thought on the most meaningful souvenir rather than something that'll end up in a box in the attic? Well, it's interesting. Sometimes we don't know. You know, sometimes what might seem trinkety is a token of that very first trip to Paris, for example. That Mm -hmm. Paris Eiffel Tower keychain was emotionally more Hmm. resonant than maybe on your 10th trip to Paris. 
When I look at my own house, and of course I had to do this while writing the book, I have a motorboat propeller from a boat that I drove down the Laotian Mekong in 1999. Mm. And it was a harebrained trip, but it was just, it was an adventure that I'll probably never replicate. And so even though to an average person, it's just a dinged up outboard boat propeller. To me, it reminds me of this crazy adventure and the night spent uh, sleeping Mm. and waking up on the shores of the Mekong. And so I think oftentimes as we go through our houses, we'll see things and they will catch us by surprise. And sometimes uh, the delight in having something like that boat propeller or certain masks or or other bars of soap from the Chelsea Hotel type things, um, Mm -hmm. they resonate the most when I haven't thought about them for a long time and then suddenly they, they bring me back to this very specific moment of travel. It's a parallel to that earliest traveler. It's one thing to be a consumer, but another to be a pilgrim. And if you have mm-hmm. that resonant moment and bring a souvenir from that moment, it's probably going to have a little bit more mm. resonance when it gets back home. Rolf Potts, fascinating book, Souvenir. Thanks so much for being with us, Rolf. Glad to be here, Rick. Thanks a lot. In a minute, we'll check in with our listeners to find out where you've been traveling and to hear what ideas the show has brought up for you. We're at 877-333-7425, and by email, the address is radio at ricksteves.com. It's travel with Rick Steves. Every so often, we like to share with everyone what some of our listeners have been writing or phoning us about on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's take a few minutes to hear what people have been commenting on and what kind of questions recent editions of the show have raised for them. And Andy's calling in from Portland in Oregon. Hey, Andy, how are you doing? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Great. Uh, what, what travel thoughts have been inspired by shows of ours you've listened to lately? Well, it was, it was uh, London Pubs. Which oh, yeah. Years and years ago, after I graduated from college, I wound up getting a student work visa, and I lived in London for a year. But I remember just gravitating mostly to the various neighborhood pubs. Initially, you might go to the guidebook pubs, the bigger ones like Punch and Judy and Covent Garden and a place like that, which I would avoid. But slowly wandering, you discover the the places off the beaten track. And I remember in that neighborhood in particular, a favorite was uh, the Lamb and Flag, just little west of Covent Garden, wonderful, old, wood-paneled pub where you could really get away from, well, Covent Garden and, and yeah. really how touristy yeah. that, that whole area is. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Well, there's, what, what, what is there, 7,000 pubs in London, and uh, <laughs> there's 10 pubs that are famous for tourists. And if you're a tourist in London and you've got 7,000 pubs to choose from, and you go to Ye Old Cheshire Cheese... Well, you're just going uh-huh. you're just going to be drinking with other Americans and you mentioned neighborhood pub to me that's the that's the key. London is a collection of neighborhoods. The pub is sort of the extended living room where everybody mm-hmm. gets together and uh it doesn't need to be famous. Uh it doesn't need to be a place where uh, Churchill drank. It's just the neighborhood pub. You go there one night and and you're sort of a, a newcomer. You go there the next night and and you're part of the circle. I was so glad to discover my neighborhood pub. I was living in a bedsit in uh, South Kensington. Between Old Brompton and Fulham Road on a quiet street, uh-huh. I was just out walking and I came across the Anglesey Arms. You know, that's and... my favorite pub in London, the Anglesey Arms. <laughs> of all these 7,000 pubs, I love South Kensington. 
and you're about a five-minute walk away from uh, any sort of a tourist action, and it's just nothing but residential. It's wonderful. It made me feel like part of the neighborhood because they got to know me. And I'm just kind of disappointed in you. You took my one little tip I was going to add to the conversation, and you already got it. <laughs> oh, no. I happen to know Anglesey Arms because I like to recommend hotels in that area, and my goal when I recommend hotels in a certain neighborhood is to find the neighborhood pub. Not where the tourists go, but where the people who own work at the hotel go after work and so on. And uh, any neighborhood would have something like this. But there's something particularly just right about the Anglesey Arms. But there's a pub that has focused on food during dinner time, And then they'll shut the kitchen down and make their money selling beer. But a lot of pubs don't want to mess with food because you make more money and it's simpler just selling beer. So you want to, mm-hmm. you know, you could eat pub grub at one of those beer pubs. But I think if you're looking for dinner, you want to go to a pub that that really does pride itself in his food. And, and that would be the Anglesey, a place like the Anglesey Arms, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I've, I've sent friends and family there who were traveling over and asked me what I thought. And all of them universally loved it. So we may be letting the cat out of the yeah. bag, I suppose. Well, there's lots um, of them. There's lots, every neighborhood has, uh, Anglesey is like it's just right out of a, a dream as far as visually what oh. you're looking for. It's got the, on a sunny evening, you've got the outdoor area with the picnic tables and all the wonderful flowers. And the people uh-huh. who run it are really cool. You know, wherever we are in London or in Britain or Ireland having our, our beer or our pub dinner, pick up your beer and take 10 minutes to just walk around the pub and enjoy the old etchings and the paintings and the the finery and the different angles and the light and the flowers and the history. It's just, these pubs are, are just flat out a delight. Uh, but you got to you got to meet the people, sit at the bar if you want to meet more people. you got to take a moment to walk around and take in the history. There's lots of character that's hiding in, in the dark little corners, and, and you'll find that if you're a good observer. I agree. The decoration's been hanging there for 100 years. It's, it's not going to be yeah. in a museum. It's just the neighborhood pub. And one thing you like about the, I like about the pubs is it's, it's not a, a dark, you know, foreboding kind of tavern. It's a multi-generational thing. You know, the, the grandmothers can be sitting there having their shandy and, uh, you know, catching up. And you can have minors in a, in a pub uh, and uh, people are enjoying a, a nice dinner. And then later on, the character will change a little bit as it's open later and the younger uh, beer-drinking crowd comes out. But remember, every pub has a personality. Uh, people of all generations are welcome. There's plenty of non-alcoholic drinks you can enjoy if you're, if you're not a beer drinker and, and fit right in. Well, maybe someday we'll meet there and uh, share our favorite pub. Anglesey Arms, South Kensington. Thanks, Andy. Amen. Okay, take Thanks, care. Rick. Bye now. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with people who have been inspired to connect with us and share their travel thoughts after listening to some of our interviews on previous shows. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Paul's calling in from Orlando. Paul, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. Yeah, which interview are you calling in response to? That's the uh, interview regarding uh, Vietnam. Okay. Actually, I went on a um, on a tour, and the tour included Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand. So on the first part of the tour, it was in Laos for three or four days. And at the airport, I saw this brand-new 70-passenger uh, French turbojet in a small airport there in Laos. I walked up to the airplane to get on, and they had two doors open, the aft door and the forward door. And since I'm a pilot, I decided I'd go in the forward door. And as I was walking aboard, the cockpit door opened up, and here's a guy that looked just like me. Hmm. I said, what are you doing there? He says, boy, this is some country. First, I bomb them, and then I, a few years later, I worked for the airlines, and I got 
kicked out by the airlines because I'm too old, but they hired me. So said, first I bomb them, then I come over and I fly for them. It's a great country. That's thought-provoking. Then later that night, I was up in Hanoi, and I had a, a taxi taking me to the hotel, and uh, had an interpreter and a driver in the front seat. And I asked the interpreter, and I said, I'm a foot taller, or at least a head taller than everybody else walking up and down the street. Am I going to have a target on my back? He says, no, no, the average age of the whole country is 29. Nobody remembers the war. You have money? We're capitalists now. He says, we like you. You have money, you spend it, you make us happy. You do not have a target on your back. We love you. I thought that was an interesting comment. <laughs> Paul, did you go to um, many uh, war-related sites in Vietnam or in Laos? Yes, I saw. Uh, it's kind of interesting where McCain landed. He landed on a lake. Of course, McCain was in the Navy. So it has a sign and a poster monument right there where he went into the lake. Hmm. We went to the prison where they kept the POWs. Mm-hmm. And then in the south, we saw the tunnels. And uh, the tunnels were very interesting because you could not see where this man was going to come up out of the ground. It was just leaves over it. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, we're standing around, the guy pops right up out of the ground. <laughs> so, so this was a demonstration for international tourists to see how these tunnels yes. functioned. Uh-huh. Did you actually go into the tunnels yourself? Yes, but you had to crawl. And it was um, not for the 82-year-olds. Yes. <laughs> and also we went to where the OSS was. In Saigon, we went to the Rex Hotel, where every night they had the bar at the top of the Rex Hotel. That's where the ABC, CBS, NBC mm-hmm. news reporters would be. Mm-hmm. And you would see, you'd see the Black Building, which was where the CIA headquarters were. Did it strike you, Paul, when you were doing your sightseeing in Vietnam, that the uh, uh, Vietnam War, what was it called, the American War, from a Vietnam point of view, the American War, history, the way it was presented, was uh, slanted in a Vietnam kind of way? How was the presentation of that history from your perspective? It was like an enigma because there was many different slants on it. Did it feel anti-American or or pro-North Vietnam, or what was the general flavor of the presentation? The presentations that we had indicated that there was the North's point of view, the South's point of view, and the United States' point of view. So there was wow. there was three different... Uh, the people in the South, they were um, they were just as crooked as the people in Washington, D.C. And then today, of course, you meet an American pilot who's, quote, too old to fly in America, so he's actually a former uh, Air Force guy hired to fly the Vietnamese airline. Right. <laughs> I thought that was unusual. And, and you're... you're me. He was so over six feet tall. He was 200 pounds, and it looked like I was looking in the mirror. <laughs> and you get a warm welcome. I mean, to me, that is yeah. so amazing. And you find that all over the world. Uh, the children of the people who used to be shooting at each other are now just working together and, um, you know, doing their thing and, and embracing life the best they can. It's, it's really amazing, right? Well, to go back to Vietnam, I think for any American, is, is an emotional and uh, an eye opening experience. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Paul, for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. We enjoy hearing from you on Travel with Rick Steves. You can email us your comments, questions, compliments, or corrections to radio at ricksteves.com. Corey in Tallahassee wrote us an email, and Corey writes, "Uh, My wife and I are planning a two-week honeymoon trip to Europe. We have three goals, to spend time at one of the glass igloo hotels in Finnish Lapland, Uh, They want to spend a few days near Mainz in Germany, where they have family, and they want to finish their trip in someplace warm like Sevilla in Andalusia. Corey and his wife are debating if this is something they can plan on their own or if they should get a travel agent. 
Okay, so honeymoon in Europe. Uh, do you need a travel agent? No, you need to, if you wanted to go to the trouble to book a night in that Igloo Hotel in Finnish Lapland, that's very expensive. It's very involved. And you're going to be way up there staying in a gimmick kind of hotel, sleeping in ice. If you want to do it, I would I would go online and check that out and look at some videos of it or something and, and see if it's really worth the trouble for you. Because to me, I wouldn't think that's worth your time or money. Uh, to see family on the Rhine River, that's simply flying to Frankfurt and then catching a train to Mainz. There's trains leaving four times an hour from the station directly to Mainz. It's less than an hour away. And uh, from there, you can uh, catch a taxi or an Uber to your relatives or have them meet at the train station. You certainly don't need a travel agent for that. And then someplace warm. Well, Sevilla, I was just there, and uh, it is beautiful. Sevilla, you can fly right in. If you're on your honeymoon, you want to minimize the stress and the exhaustion. Uh, I would fly to Mainz and enjoy your relatives. And then from Frankfurt, you've got a direct flight, I would imagine, to Sevilla. And uh, Sevilla is the greatest city in southern Spain. What you want to do is get your flight from home to Frankfurt, from Frankfurt to Sevilla, and from Sevilla back home. You want to let your relatives know you're coming to Germany and they'll take good care of you. And you want to book a hotel in Sevilla and get a guidebook so you have some information about what you want to see in and around Sevilla. If you wanted to have a little adventure and give an extra dimension, rent a car in Sevilla and drive south for an hour and you're in what's called the Route of the Pueblos Blancos, the Route of the Whitewashed Hill Towns. I was just there and it's a delightful place, uh, just an hour away from Sevilla to get into the small whitewashed towns away from the big city. But Sevilla has so much charm and, and there's so much life in the streets and I was just walking around Sevilla uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was looking at all these famous sites and all these, frankly, uh, cultural and touristic cliches and things we want to do in Sevilla. It's on everybody's checklist. And then I realized I'm in a neighborhood and the neighborhood uh, square had a, a beautiful uh, set of play uh, structures and all the families were there and the moms and the dads were having a coffee and they were watching their kids and the kids were just bubbling with energy and I realized I'm surrounded by a community, and I'm walking through some neighborhood in Sevilla, and I'm part of the scene. I just think that's a great idea, beautiful thing for a honeymoon. See your relatives in Germany, and then enjoy the culture, the spirit, and the, the beautiful climate in Andalusia and Sevilla. Corey, best wishes. Thanks for the email. Rosa's calling from Puna on the Big Island in Hawaii. Aloha, Rosa. Aloha. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I was, you know, I grew up and lived in Germany for about 28 years, and I was not the normal traveler. I was basically looking for an alternative lifestyle to live. So I was truly, you know, searching for my perfect fit, you know, in, in any country. <laughs> so I came to Copenhagen, and there's this little section inside Copenhagen that is Christiania. And Rosa, let's explain to our listeners who've not been there, Copenhagen is so well organized, and everybody is in their place. It's like a, a societal jute box. And uh, there's one place where everybody just goes free and crazy, and that is Christiania. It's a, it's a squatter community, a bunch of... Uh, well, originally a bunch of hippies back in the, what, the, the 70s when they first uh, right, established right. Squatters' and Rights. I was there. I was there in 70, I believe it was either 73 or 74. Oh, you were? Because they first took mm -hmm. over in 1971, I believe, and uh, several hundred of these uh, hippies, they, they recognized that the military barracks were just being 
they were just empty, unused. So they said, hey, squatter's rights. They took it over, and nobody wanted that land, so they established their community. And now, a couple generations later, there's a, it's a well-established community. Exactly, yes. And, you know, the interesting part is, I mean, I heard various stories. They actually had their own passports in Christiania. They had their own guard. This was guys you would see with a black armband and German shepherds walking around making sure everything is cool and uh, there's no Copenhagen police force would come into that area or anything. That was back in the 70s, right? Right. In those days, there was a bakery and, and there was a bike shop. Those were the two businesses that were really flourishing well. And there was a sauna that was really very home-built and that you could enjoy. And they also had this little river going through Christiania, and down by the river were various types of housing arrangements that, that looked more like, oh, you're, you're somewhere in a Zen garden. I mean, people would yeah. sit there and meditate. And then there was down by the river where you had the meditative yoga community where mm-hmm. people like to sit and meditate and do their yoga and everything, you know. Anybody who goes to Copenhagen has the choice. You can see the Little Mermaid, and that's fun. Or you could take a bike ride through Christiania. And if you take a bike ride through Christiania, it's got 600 adults. Uh, I I believe there's 200 kids there. And uh, you've got all of these wonderful sort of um, homemade dwellings, geodesic domes and so on. Nobody nobody owns the land. Everybody is just living together. And it's this uh, utopian, idealistic community. It's, you know, it's got its problems and its challenges. But right now they've been there for 50 years and uh, they've they've managed to uh, live with the materialistic and uh, commercial world outside, but in their own way. They don't go shopping. They go. They swap things, and uh, they, they, have barter. Their, they, they barter. They barter, yeah. and they have their own mm-hmm. schools, and and they've got big fancy graffiti that celebrates their their values. I'll never forget a, a local slogan, uh, something like "Kundoda fisk flieder med stromen." Only dead fish swim with the current, and they don't want to swim with the current. And you know, you don't have to embrace that, but it is really nice that you can go to a place where six or eight hundred people are actually, you know, living the way they want to in the middle of all that affluence and conformity in Denmark, and and it's Christiania. Right. And when were you last there? Oh, I go there every couple of years because it's to me it's a big part of going to Copenhagen. What's right. fun about it is there's actually uh, tours. Uh, now, you know, they meet people a couple times a day, and one of the residents takes you on a tour, and they're a little bit evangelical about their values, and they're a bunch of peaceniks and a bunch of vegetarians and a bunch of nonconformists and a bunch of people that are fanatic about, uh, you know, raising kids that uh, are free-spirited. And <laughs> it's so thought-provoking. And the interesting thing is one of the finest gourmet restaurants in the whole city is in a, in a, in a warehouse in Christiania, and you go there and button down professionals, accountants and lawyers and so on, they venture into this hippie community and they spend a fair amount of money and they dine by candlelight in this ramshackle, bohemian chic environment and they have fine cuisine in Christiania. And I think the name of the restaurant is Spiesalopen, which means... Uh, Spiesalopen? Spiesalopen. Spiesalopen. And a spiesa wow, is a, a, I have to go. I have to go. Again. It's a that's flea. Really so amazing. that's where the flea eats, like a flea market or something. But Spiesalopen. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you'd enjoy <laughs> going back a... to Christiania 30 or 40 or 50 years after your original visit. I think that's a great idea. 
I have not gone back, and I must go back. I'm really, really very interested now, very curious Check it out. about the change. And have dinner All at right. Spiesel Open. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Aloha, bye. Aloha. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner with Sarah McCormick. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to our colleagues at National Public Radio in Washington and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Read what Rick's been thinking about lately in his online travel blog. Look for Rick's posts on Facebook or at blog.ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.